0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is legendary strength and conditioning coach and physical therapist, Don Chu. Don has developed an extensive reputation in the field of sports rehabilitation and in the areas of fitness and conditioning. He has been credited with bringing plyometric training to the attention of the athletic world through his application of theoretical knowledge into practical demonstrations. Don has published six books, including Jumping into Plyometrics, now in its second edition, has written articles referred in journals, and contributed to chapters in many other books. His lectures on plyometrics and other topics in sports medicine have been heard throughout virtually every state and many foreign countries over the past decade. On this episode Don and I discussed many topics including Don's background and his influences, long-term athletic development and plyometrics, Don's training philosophy Don's thoughts on jump profiling and using it as a diagnostic tool for program prescription. How Don implements his plyometric programming over the course of a micro cycle. Don's take about using both depth jumps and drop jumps within an athlete's program. Don's thoughts on eccentric and isometric training methods. Don's use of monitoring and readiness strategies with his athletes. Don's biggest lessons that he's learned in his career so far, and finally, Don's top advice for all of the listeners. Guys, this was another Top Class episode, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, Don Chu, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you come on to my podcast. Uh, Don, just for the listeners who might be too familiar with who you are, which I would imagine will be basically nobody, just fill us in on your background.
1: Well, uh... I am the author of six books related to uh, fitness training, and, of course, the big one is the book uh, titled Pliometrics, which I co-authored with uh, Greg Meyer out of Cincinnati Chil- Children's Hospital. And uh, I coached uh, track and field for 14 years up at Cal State University Hayward. And we were relatively successful in the jumping events. And uh, basically, that's uh, kind of a synopsis of my career.
0: Great stuff. So, a question I'd like to ask all the guests that come on to the show, Don, is in terms of influences, who's been the biggest influences on you, both personally and professionally?
1: Well, I think uh, personally... Uh, Al Vermeel has been a tremendous uh, asset for and resource for me to go to, and Al and I have known each other since the 70s, and uh, basically, we still uh, communicate and exchange information on a regular basis, and I know of no human being who is uh, more versed in the area of strength and conditioning than Al Vermeule. And I think professionally, boy, that's a good question. But I'd have to, I'd have to really attribute a lot to uh, Carl Jack Lutt, who was our team physician at Cal State Hayward, because he was a major mentor in my early development and career as a physical therapist.
0: Don, in terms of the current state of the physical preparation profession and rehabilitation professions. What are the really good things that you're seeing right now within our profession? And then also at the other end of that spectrum, what are the not so good things that you're seeing? And with the not so good, what sort of solutions may you offer for those? So basically, what's the, the good, bad and the ugly that you're seeing within our profession?
1: Well, I think the really good things are the expanding knowledge uh knowledge base, and basically the enthusiasm for the field. Uh, if there's a drawback to that, it's that it comes with people who are uh, too much interested in quick fixes and recipes rather than developing uh, individualized programs and really attending to the needs of their particular athletes from a physical preparation standpoint.
0: You're kind of known as an expert when it comes to plyometrics. What what is it about plyometrics and jump training that that really sort of, you know, that that's really sort of drawn you towards that type of training and, and kind of seen you as an expert in that particular area.
1: Well, you know, it's it's kind of interesting because I have to give credit to Vereshansky and and the Russians uh, for their works in the area of quote unquote jump training. And they were the originators of this type of or form of exercise. And I was sort of a Johnny come lately, but I was the first person in the United States to classify all of their work and try to put it into a, a useful form for American coaches. My intent was uh, never to uh, assume that I was trying to develop something novel it was really to categorize information that was basically out there and put it into a form so that other coaches could understand it.
0: In in terms of um, plyometrics, in looking at long-term athletic development, what are some sort of training guidelines you could give to the listeners in terms of volumes and intensities and density schemes and how also – uh, does the plyometric train prescription change, uh, with regards to other sort of uh, physical capacities and qualities that are being trained? So basically, like in in the in the total sort of training picture, where do plyometrics fall within that? And then in terms of a sort of long term, like development, uh, window, how do the how does the plyometrics progress from sort of a novice to more intermediate to advanced athlete in terms of volumes and intensities?
1: Right. I've always seen plyometrics as uh, icing on the cake, if you will. And uh, I don't think you can fool yourself. Uh, you need a strength base in order to perform plyometric training and to be able to benefit from plyometric training. So the idea is, uh, as I look at it, and as I currently do my work, I uh, much of it is age-related. So, If I have a young athlete, such as I do right now, a a six foot three inch volleyball player who's 13 years old and has uh, really uh, the gift of height, but not necessarily the gift of jumping ability, uh, I look at that individual and I assess her needs as really being the development of basic strength. And uh, so we'll invest the majority of time in. in developing basic strength, basic lower extremity strength, and then trying to teach the techniques of jumping because there are a number of key factors that go into being a successful jumper. And we hope over a period of time that we see an adaptation to this type of training that yields uh, better results. And we test on a regular basis and we look for those long-term changes so she started uh, with us when she was 13 years of age and uh, when she starts to approach 16 we're going to look at her in a different uh, view in a different way and hopefully she will establish that strength base that will allow us to upgrade her plyometric training and the number of jumps that she takes. Right now we're controlling her jumps at about uh, 30 to 50 foot contacts per workout, and most of those are basically to heights that she can handle fairly easily, because right now we're just trying to ensure success and implant implant the movement patterns that are necessary to be successful in jumping.
0: Great stuff. So, Don... Walk us through your sort of training philosophy, principle, system, whatever sort of term you want to give it. Let's say I'm an athlete and I show up at your facility. How does the process go from there? So do you like to screen athletes' movements and then do you like to do some quant- uh, quantitative testing, like looking at things like a jump profile and strength numbers and energy systems? Uh, and then in terms of the actual training prescription, how does that look?
1: Absolutely. You know, it's interesting, uh, Robbie, when we get kids that uh, come to us, a lot of times parents will bring them in with uh, two weeks left in their season or something, Mm. and they'll want us to work some kind of miracle for their playoffs, uh, this type of thing. So it's an interesting process, and and, uh, I really do like to start with a profile so that we have some baseline data on the athlete and if i see something that visually uh stops me and gives me pause then we'll video that athlete as they go through their movement patterns to try and pick up what it is that's different or what it is that is catching our eye. and often we'll find uh some movements that occur in in youngsters and they'll do certain things like uh let's say, on a change of direction, say they're doing the pro-agility test, uh, we'll catch them double-stepping at the ends as they sort of land and then reset to change directions, and especially when they're young. And so we try and talk them uh, and teach them out of that kind of... into a much more efficient uh, exchange of of directions uh, procedure. And so... Uh, We use that data, like I say, to kind of give us a baseline also to teach from and then also to give us an idea on where we start their training. And um, a lot of our athletes, because of their ages and because of their experiences, uh, we will start with basic body weight exercises and just ensuring uh, technical patterns so that they achieve the right number of degrees in a lower extremity exercise and that they'll uh, they'll be able to respond to the ground in a, in a certain way, so that we can stimulate uh, fast twitch muscle fibers and try to stimulate their overall neural system, so that they can better adapt to plyometric exercises.
0: Great stuff. In terms of looking at different uh, jumps through a jump profile, like a a non counter movement and a counter movement, and then like a reactive strength index. What are your certain thoughts on norms there for particular athletes, so a female versus a male? And A question I've often asked some other coaches and researchers is, should there be some type of ratio between an athlete's non-counter, counter movement, or reactive strength index? Um, and based off those ratios, does, does that give you a sort of indication of where a particular athlete may be weak in terms? They might be more weak in terms of strength versus maybe elastic reactive capabilities. What's your thought process around uh, like the different types of jump profiles?
1: Well, it's it's definitely something that we look at, and uh, usually it's an indicator of whether somebody has a lack of strength or whether they have a lack of elastic strength. And what we're looking at is the athlete's ability to power out of a a non-counter-movement jump versus uh, doing a a counter-movement jump. And then you're looking at the two and trying to determine where the emphasis should be in their training, whether it be strength or whether it be just plyometric activity. And we find with the younger kids that it's almost always a strength need. And if it's uh, an older, more established athlete, we may find athletes that have adequate strength preparation and they really can go into a uh, more dominant plyometric activity program.
0: I've often heard, and I suppose you heard about it too, in terms of having a, a sufficient strength base before you start to introduce a lot of true plyometrics into an athlete's program and I stress the word true plyometrics because you know I think a lot of people thought geez to do a box jump I had to be you know squatting two times body weight which I don't think was the case it was more so when you're starting into advanced plyos like depth jumps and stuff like that uh, in, in terms of you know having a sufficient strength base do you have any norms there like a one and a half two time body weight squad or I, I've heard Al say as well this ability to control your I think it's 50% of your body weight for like five seconds down or something like that. So there's a few other sort of test indicators. Um, but uh, I suppose the most common one is this one and a half to two times body weight before you start to do any aggressive plyometrics like depth jumps of that nature, like that Perkashansky spoke about. So do you have any thoughts around that area?
1: Right. I, I like to use uh, a one and a half times body weight parameter for high school athletes, for high school age athletes. That's our goal is to get them to the point where they can squat uh, all the way down to parallel with a uh, with a, uh, a weight uh, akin to uh, 1.5 times their body weight. And so that's not our starting point, and that doesn't mean that we don't start plyometric exercises earlier. But again, we, we tend to control the number of depth jumps, uh, the number of... Uh, Uh, high intensity jumps versus low intensity jumps uh, in their preparation and in their training uh, when they are uh, lacking in that strength base and as they approach that strength base then we pretty much take the the hands off and and really go after the, the longer heavier workouts in the plyometric area such as for a long jumper, triple jumper, uh, 15, 1,500 yards of bounding in, uh, in, in the midseason is perfectly appropriate in my mind. And that's what we will push for. And if it's a volleyball player, we'll push for maybe 150 to 250 jumps in a single workout mm. of a vertical nature uh, because of their particular sport and its demands.
0: If you have an athlete for, let's say you have a field-based athlete, and they're with you for three, maybe four days a week, are you sort of classifying or having an emphasis of what particular type of uh, plyometrics you're going to emphasize that day? So, like, do you have like a linear day, and let's say would you have like a linear double leg day, so a jumping day or a bounding day, or sorry, a jumping day I should say, and then would you have like a single leg day, like a hopping and bounding day? And then on the other days, would you do more multi-directional, so maybe some lateral bounding or some medial lateral hopping? Would you split that up over the course of the week if you
1: had that lead three or four times a week? Well, again, it depends on the specificity of the event. And Mm. so if we're talking track and field, if we're a a vertical or a linear jumper, we're going to put 90 to 95 percent of our effort into that uh, particular task. So if it's a long jumper triple jumper as I say we're going to put a lot of emphasis on the linear jumps versus the vertical jumps and it's just the opposite if you're a high jumper and uh this sort of thing and then we work a lot more single leg takeoffs uh for the long jumper and for the high jumper so that they uh get used to using that dominant leg and they can learn to be explosive off of that but by and large uh I would say, you know, we're we're looking at uh, trying to, again, meet certain parameters. So we might have set uh, some standards up beforehand, such as, let's say, the standing triple jump, uh, just as a measure of linear strength and power. And we'll uh, look at those athletes and compare them to their beginning standing long triple jump and uh, where they're currently at. So that we can use that data to say, yes, we're progressing or no, we're not progressing and we maybe need to change our, our emphasis. And it may be that really what is necessary is just active rest so that we get away from all of the jumping and all of the weight training and give them time to recover.
0: With regards to the, the, the reactive strength index, um, are, are you taking into consideration uh, the ground contact time? So I, I know like in um, Schmidt-Blaker's work, you know, he often references 200 a milli, 250 milliseconds as a sort of threshold or this cutoff point where that if you're below that, it's considered to be a fast stress shortening cycle contraction. And if you're above that, it's considered to be a slow stress shortening um, contraction, uh, stress shortening cycle contraction. So we are at least, are you taking into consideration uh, the ground contact if you're going to do some uh,
1: depth jump training
0: or drop, or drop jump training? Always,
1: always. Uh, I love schmidt Bleicher's work, and I've always uh, utilized his concepts. And I think that it's really important that when we're looking at athletes that have to react quickly to a stimulus, that you have to emphasize and train for those short ground contact times. We have a switch mat that we use, and we regularly record uh, ground contact times, and then look at uh, the athlete's performance to see if, in fact, we're getting, uh, we're holding steady, or we're actually suffering a decrease, to the increased ground contact time, or a decreased ground contact time, uh, that which would be uh, emphasizing and meaning that we are making progress. So, again, it depends on the event. And if you look at sprinting, uh, you know, you're looking at ground contact times uh, in and around the area of a tenth of a second. So you've got to train for that. You can't train someone to be slow or to have a, a large ground contact time and then expect them to be successful in an event that requires a short ground contact time. So it's just that simple. And so, uh, you know, we have athletes that we do train with longer ground contact times, and those, uh, come in sports such as wrestling, where, uh, and last year we trained a high school group of wrestlers, and they, uh, all did very, very well this last year, uh, in their performances. And are really, I think, because of the fact that they've learned to become more explosive off the ground even though they were actually slower in their ground contact time than say a sprinter or a jumper would be. Mm, mm.
0: Great stuff great stuff and do you use both dead jumps and drop jumps in your training because they like I know from Verkashansky's work and particularly Natalia. so uh, she's been over to America a few times to speak on this topic and I, I know she speaks about it a lot the difference between depth jumps and drop jumps and that you know depth jump is generally going to be uh something that has larger displacements uh, at the knee and the ankle and the hip and it's more about jumping as high as you can and not so much the, the emphasis is so much your reactivity off the ground and it's more to develop sort of explode well it's going to develop elastic strength as well but more so explosive strength and even to a, a certain degree some maximum strength so basically the, the emphasis on a depth jump seems to be more about you know, the actual height of jump and the, the amount of output you can get, regardless of the amount of time you're spending on the ground to a certain extent, whereas a drop jump is all about how fast you can react with your contact off the ground. And um, I suppose, again, it depends on, on what the athlete is lacking, but would you utilize both depth jumps and drop jumps within your training?
1: I do, but I use the drop jumps uh, to a lesser degree, okay. mainly because of the joint stress. And I think that there's, there's some really high-impact forces that are passed through to the joints on the drop jumps, so we tend to do fewer of them than we do the depth jumps. And I think uh, in a lot of instances, the depth jump is much closer. We can, we can set it up so that it's more sports-specific, mm-hmm. and so that way we can utilize uh, that shorter reaction time and have it transfer to the actual field. Or court, and uh, we get a better uh, result or outcome from that type of training.
0: What are some of the issues you're seeing with regards to rehabilitation of injuries and re- return to play from your, from what you're seeing, and um, from your point of view?
1: Well, you know, the, the again, the biggest thing is I think that people don't prepare people to absorb ground contact mm-hmm. forces. And uh, ground contact forces uh, play a tremendous role in the recovery process as well as they do in the performance process. So uh, getting somebody back to the point where they can actually perform at a higher level uh, means that you have to regulate their rehabilitation in much the same way as you do the performance uh, regulation. You have to control the variables and you have to really put emphasis on uh, development. And again, you have to have those measurables to compare to to ensure that your outcome is adequate.
0: Don, do you you utilize much eccentric and isometric work in the weight room?
1: Uh, Do a little bit of isometric. Uh, Sometimes I will incorporate isometrics when people seem to be plateauing or hitting sticking points. Uh, you know, otherwise, I uh, just incorporate it as part of the process, and we may put uh, an exercise in that's isometric uh, for variety. We may put it in uh, to emphasize a particular position, uh, but you know, we will incorporate it in, in that way. But primarily, we're doing isotonic work, and we're doing a lot of ballistic lifting, uh, this type of thing. And I'm not necessarily a huge advocate when I'm training youngsters on emphasizing the overall weight that they lift. Uh, sometimes we will choose uh, actually a lighter weight, sacrifice some of the uh, probably strength development for speed of movement.
0: Yeah, the reason I ask that is that there's, there's been a lot of, um, I suppose, I don't want to say the word hype, but it's it's been kind of brought to more people's awareness the importance maybe of the consideration of more eccentric contractions in the training process, um and even some isometric work. I suppose Cal Dietz when he came out triphasic training, there was the work of Jay Schroeder, and there's a gentleman called Matt Jordan up in Calgary. He's done a lot now looking at um kind of jumping profiles and things like uh, drop jump profiles. He works a lot with skiers and return to play protocols for acls and, and he's noticing that like the there's very different sort of firing mechanisms obviously between an eccentric and concentric contraction and he feels that most strength coaches were fairly biased towards concentric numbers in the weight room and we're not really considering to a degree these kind of higher velocity eccentric contractions that are at least seen to get prepared for so that's kind of why i asked like i know we're, we're to an extent we're definitely getting it through our plyometric training as long as we do it in a progressive manner. But uh, I, was, I was recently at Altus in, in Phoenix, Arizona, and Stu McMillan, the, the head sprint coach, and um, Jason Hetler, the head strength and conditioning coach, they, they would have the sprinters do an awful lot of these, what are called reflexive eccentric. So if you can picture a Bulgarian split squat, and the athletes would just kind of like almost just drop and catch themselves in a isometric position at the end. And it was to kind of facilitate the, the tissues to get used to these higher velocities and uh, the eccentric contractions. Um, so
1: it was just interesting sure. to see that yeah,
0: it was interesting to see that so uh, that's why I was just asking if you, if
1: you incorporate it yeah no Well, uh, you know I've always been a huge believer in eccentric uh, forces and incorporating them in our workouts and we will have again uh, like much like we do the isometrics we'll have a particular emphasis on the eccentric movements so uh, as an example they may be doing a, a set of eight uh leg presses and then on the on the eighth repetition they'll lower the bar eccentrically to a count of 10 and then we'll emphasize that way you know just getting them going on on utilizing eccentric strength but uh we also have days where we'll put into their program a uh, strictly an eccentric squat routine where they may do sets of 3 but they're all eccentrically loaded, and it's it's done with safety bars and stops, et cetera, so that they can lower the bar slowly against resistance and fight that, uh, so that they develop the eccentric phase. But I, I'm a uh, we have an Ecentron, which is a device that that uh, applies eccentric forces to the to the legs when they're in a in a sort of a, a alternating leg press situation. And, uh, we utilize that device a lot when we first start with youngsters and athletes. And it's amazing because we can, uh, we will affect the gluteus maximus more doing that particular routine than we do any other exercise. So, uh, again, if we're looking at that posterior chain and looking at the, the extensor mechanism, uh, if we want to get to those particular muscles eccentrically is one of the best ways of of touching them
0: in in terms of your program design and particularly your your session design um where apply metrics fall within that are are they you know i know most coaches would have them after their warm up generally before speed work sometimes coaches have them after speed work depending on their logistics and then uh after that they would go into their their more sort of uh, heavier strength work, be that into some sort of explosive strength work with Olympic iterations or just going into their actual strength work with more the classical type lifts. So in terms of a session structure, where, where would you usually like to type in your plyometrics?
1: Well, I drive you crazy because uh, I incorporate plyometrics at all phases, and it depends. Let's, let's take for an example a volleyball player who's uh, – who's, uh, fairly well established in the program. They've been with us for a couple of months, and and we see that what their strength levels are, and they've achieved those goals. Then we will immediately put in a complex training uh, type of situation where we'll have them squat, and after each set of squats, they'll do uh, 15 tuck jumps or 10 rim jumps or whatever you want to call them or just uh, jumps to the box. Uh, you know, with, which are done at a challenging height. And so, again, uh, we'll take this concept of trying to excite the body or arouse it using heavier weights and then immediately have them transfer to doing a ballistic exercise while their bodies are still aroused. And I think we get very good results with this.
0: Very good, very good. Tom, what would you say are some of the biggest lessons
1: you've learned so far in your career? Uh, I think some of the biggest lessons I've learned are uh, everything in moderation. And uh, I I once read a study that uh, showed that older coaches have less injuries than younger coaches in their sporting uh, teams, and I tend to adhere to that because I think that as you mature and you get experience, you learn that not everything uh, is a crisis management situation and sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. And so you walk away from an exercise before you complete the exercise when you see that it's not going well. And uh, I think this has helped us to maintain our record of having had very few injuries in training. And we have very few injuries amongst the athletes we train when they perform mm-hmm. and so uh, happy about that
0: just going back to your your background Don uh, so did, did you get into PT and then become a strength coach or vice versa or, or how did you marry both fields together how did you
1: fall into both the,
0: the rehab field and the and the physical <laughs> preparation field
1: well you, you know it's interesting because I always had an interest in uh, sports and kinesiology prior to my going to physical therapy school and uh, I, my original intent after my undergraduate degree was to go on and get a, a graduate degree a doctorate perhaps in, in uh, biomechanics and uh, I just on a lark applied for physical therapy school and I got in and so I've never regretted the time that I spent getting that degree because it's, it's been a tremendous asset to, uh, to me over the years, but uh, I've always considered myself to have an equal interest between both the kinesiology, physiological, biomechanical aspects of performance, and physical therapy, which is basically the restoration of normal uh, behavior and movement. So uh, in those two areas, uh, I think I've been able to marry together my love of sport and working with athletes, uh, in, and it's uh, proved me well over the years.
0: Well, what what uh, is exciting you most right now? Like, is there a particular area that you're researching, or is there just something you're seeing within the profession, or anything, anything within your life? What, 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 is, what do you find very exciting right now?
1: Well, you know, I've been in this business long enough to realize that everything is cyclic, And, uh, uh I just returned uh, from the, uh, NC2A track and field championships up in Oregon, and I was a spectator up there this weekend. And I was really pleased to see by the performances that I think we're coming into another generation of good athletes. And, uh, I think for a while, track and field actually suffered a deficit because we didn't have the quality of performers that we really needed to have. And uh, what has transpired uh, over the last few years is I think we've been developing kids and they've been coming along and we seem to have hit that generation when we're going to see great performances from these people, uh, at least for the next couple of years and hopefully through the next Olympiad.
0: Great stuff, great stuff. What would your top resources be to any of the coaches listening? So in terms of books, uh, videos, DVDs, audios, courses, be them online or in person, or even actual peers within the field, coaches to go visit, who or what would be your top resources for the listeners to check out?
1: Well, I think uh, one of the up-and-coming uh Individuals in the field of strength conditioning and performance is Derek Hanson out of, oh, well, he was out of Simon Fraser. He's currently, I think, just uh, independently consulting now. Uh, but of course, him. Uh, I think Al Vermeil is uh, is obviously still a tremendous resource. Uh, I really like Rob Paterello from New York, who's uh, much like I am, a physical therapist and a strength coach. And uh, I think his background and his, his ability to read the research and understand it is tremendous. And I like Greg Meyer out of uh, Cincinnati Children's Hospital, just a tremendous thinker and uh,
0: really a great
1: researcher. So uh, he can sort of keep me on the straight and narrow when I'm looking at ideas and trying to assess things and, and to evaluate the quality of what, I, what it is that I'm reading. So those probably are my primary go-to people.
0: Have you got any books or videos, DVDs, podcasts, books particularly? I suppose.
1: Well, you know, I, I, Bill. In fact, I just bought, uh, I just bought uh, work that was done by his daughter, and uh, I guess it's a recap. So I wanted to see what they had to say, so I could compare it the, with the earliest writings that I utilized. When I was first getting into plyometric training, uh, I know that uh, I scoured the uh, Soviet Sports Review, which was a translation, uh, of course, of, of the Russian literature. But uh, it was uh, it was a key piece of, of effort uh, in my on my behalf when I was first starting out and trying to develop ideas in the field.
0: Yeah, I I i say. I do like the the latest manual that he'd done with his daughter that was released, um, the Strength Coaches Manual. I really like that, the, the second. Yeah, the second yeah
1: I'm really looking forward to looking that over.
0: Yeah, the second edition. Yeah, I think I got that off Joseph Johnson at uh, Ultimate Alley Concepts. He also sells great books of that nature. So, yeah, I, I read that book about two years ago, I must, and I dip in and out of it, but I found it much more readable than the earlier Berkashansky stuff, so it was a really good piece of work. Good. In in terms of your top advice to all the coaches, Don, what would your top advice be? And this advice can be anything; it doesn't have to be just limited to advice within the strength and conditioning and rehabilitation professions. It could be just uh, you know global life advice.
1: Well, I think that uh, the one thing I that helped me the most in my career when I was first starting was really the the documentation, just writing down everything that I did and then this enabled me to go back and look and when we had success when we didn't have success I could go back and compare and uh, really assess whether I was doing adequate things to prepare people for performance or and what the outcome was and you know in track and field you always have that single goal at the end Whether it be an NC2A championship or whether it be the Olympics, but you have an end goal that you're striving for, and that's the ultimate assessment that you have for your work. And so you can always go back and you can compare, but if you don't have those records to compare to, then you leave yourself at a real deficit. And so I think the documenting of of what you're planning for an athlete, what you're doing really important through the
0: years. Just going back uh, to a question on monitoring and readiness, do you do anything from a daily standpoint with your athletes to monitor their daily readiness, Like, do you like to look at uh, one of their jump indicators, be it a a vertical jump or a drop jump, or I know know you said you don't utilize drop drop jumps uh, too much in your training. but or do you look at uh, other any other indicators? Do you use HRV or even subjective RPEs or uh, palms? Like, is there anything you're you're looking at there?
1: Well, you know, again, we look at uh, just at the overall performance mm-hmm. and kind of make a mental assessment of how people are going. You know, you have such variety in the human body and the human individual. Uh, you have so many mood swings, you have different levels of hormones in and, and junior high kid, age kids, and so there's so many different variables, you just kind of have to be aware of your surroundings and wh- how people are performing, and this is why you need to spend, I think, uh, some individual time uh, spotting people, working with people, uh, people through the exercises so that you can look at their performance. And then again, you have to use that, uh, that sort of uh, conservative line of thinking in terms of their performances. When you see them having the bad day, you've got to have the uh, wherewithal to say, okay, let's back down on this a little bit, and maybe we won't go to those 42-inch hurdle jumps today. We'll save that for next time, you know, or something like that. But it's just that sort of moderating their performances And making those individual adjustments for people as as they go through the process. Mm -hmm.
0: Just uh, do do you use any fatigue drop-off indicators? So, like, I know some coaches, if they're doing speed work or if they're doing some type of plyometric work, like, let's say they were they were doing some drop jumps or or depth jumps, and they were looking at height and ground contact time, and they would kind of use like a five percent maybe fatigue drop-off. Uh, as, as as a sort of um, threshold to, to cut off the train that day so that basically it's more auto-regulated than saying we're doing this fixed amount of sets and reps and we're just going to do it no matter what. Do you kind of do any auto-regulation like that with fatigue percentages?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and we use as much as a 10% drop-off. Wow. And, uh, you That's... know, and just to, it'll depend a lot on the quality of movement uh, if they have quality of movement, you know one of the biggest things we issues we have uh, with the young female athletes is they'll get intimidated by certain heights or certain efforts and uh, you know they'll as adolescent girls will do they'll have a letdown in their motivation and their desire to complete the workout and they get they just get kind of get. Carry or balk at and they balk at the different performance uh, parameters so the idea is how do we coach them through that and then you have to come up with a different form of motivation and a lot of times it's just look let's not fight it let's back down and let's do something they can handle and then we'll come back at a different time and a lot of times it'll be within the same workout and we have a, a number of athletes who kind of go through a self-realization like, oh, hey, I can do that. Let me try that again. So then we'll let them go ahead and do it again. When
0: you you say a 10% drop-off, is that just purely when it comes to plyometric work or would you have that across the board with speed work and strength work? Because I know certain coaches have different drop-off thresholds for different uh, qualities.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We do it for strength workouts too. Because there, there, we, we don't see it very often, but there are days when uh, certain weights or certain exercises like squats or cleans will be very difficult for the athlete. And what's more important, completing the workout or struggling with a particular resistance, which may not be accomplishable uh, on that particular time and at that moment. So the idea is let's go ahead and we'll focus on a different thing so that maybe we'll focus on the the technique or the quality of movement, or maybe we'll switch it to do eccentric, uh, to do an eccentric emphasis. But the idea is that we're going to focus on completing that particular task, so that we can say we did the workout. Yeah, that type of thing.
0: Just uh, I never really asked in, in terms of uh, you know, so your, your sort of program design and like maybe more so it's periodization. Do you have a particular sort of periodization scheme that you, you kind of uh, have a more sort of uh, a bias towards? Like do you, do you sort of program similar to like Al in terms of like more vertical integration that you're kind of training every quality all the time, but you're just shifting your emphasis depending on the the block or phase of training that you're in?
1: Well, to answer that question, you know, it, it depends on... Uh, It depends on the time of the year and what our situation is with the athlete. Because I'm not in the institutional setting and I'm in the private uh, clinic setting, uh, what generally happens is a lot of our athletes are coming back to us now for summer. Mm. And so now we have had a whole year where they've been away at school and we come back and we start resuming our workout schedule and then we have to reassess where they're at in that process and we expect to see an increase in their strength and, and, and largely if nothing else due to their physical maturity. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I get you. Uh, Don, I was going to ask as well, if you had uh, the chance to have dinner with five individuals, dead or alive, who would they be and why?
1: Oh, boy. Uh, I would say, you know, I never had the opportunity to speak with Bereshavsky. I think that would be an interesting one. And uh, I think also, I I would go to dinner with Frank Dick in a heartbeat. Uh And uh, not only because he's a a great mind, but because he's really humorous. And uh, always... uh, I would go with Al Vermeule because we always do whenever we get the opportunity. Uh, I think, uh, probably one of the really old timers. I would like to spend some time, uh, talking to, uh, uh, I think it's Tommy Kona, yeah. the, the weightlifter. Yeah. And, uh, I think also I would love to talk to, uh, to, uh, some of the old sprinters, some of the old track and field people, and, and just kind of getting their assessment on uh, how it was that they got to the level that they got to.
0: Finally, could you maybe talk us through a typical day in the life of Don Chu? So, like, uh, how does a typical day look for you in your in your private clinic setting? So, you know, what what does that? What time do you get up at? Do you do any reading? Do you study? Uh, do you have any sort of daily routines? Any? Do you meditate or? Is there any any sort of daily routines that you think are very important to optimize your readiness performance as a clinician and a coach every day?
1: You know, I I rarely meditate. I have to be honest. Uh, I've never been a fan of meditation, but uh, that's just my individual preference. Uh, I personally start with a cup of coffee, and then I get to work, and I usually have patients scheduled from about 9 until noon. And then I start to have athletes coming in at different times. We do everything by appointment, and then we end up at the end of the day with a crush of people. So uh, at that time, uh, I'll take some time before the athletes really start to filter in here to sit down and go through their programs to see what kinds of changes need to be made. Now, because I have such a small population, I mean, really, we're talking five to ten athletes. Uh, I can, and, and I know this is wrong to say, but I do a lot of it in my head. And I keep, I keep a mental book on a lot of the kinds of things that I need to be worked on or changed or adapted to uh, in, in my own uh, memory banks. And so uh, I've done this long thought that I've developed progressions. And, uh, you know, those progressions are, are things that I'm looking for in terms of uh, their performances and their workouts. And if I see that we're hitting those progressions, I'm a happy camper. If we're not, I need to know why. And so then that requires a much more serious investigation of what's going on. But uh, we work with young athletes. We work with uh, professional athletes. And and we have uh, a few high school athletes that that we're involved in. And uh, so I'm always looking, there are certain biases that I have, obviously, sports like basketball, volleyball, track and field have my uh, sort of natural interest, but I will also work with other athletes as well.
0: Great stuff, great stuff. And uh, between the rehabilitation and coaching, do you have uh, a certain favorite if you have to pick, make a choice?
1: I'd much rather prefer to be coaching <laughs> uh,
0: Don in, in terms of your just your own facility where where is that located and also just for any of the younger coaches listening, do you offer any internships to any younger coaches?
1: we do, and uh, we do offer one or two intern insure- internships depending on the demand and the, the the commitment that people are willing to make. and then uh, we work. Uh, we're located in Dublin, California. Uh, we're housed within the Cooper Sport Performance Building, and uh, we do our, our work out of here. We have access to a, a 30-meter running track we, for starts and acceleration work, and then we have a, a very fine, well-equipped weight room with three lifting platforms and Aleco weights and that sort of thing.
0: Great so, Great stuff. Any final parting words, Dom, before we finish up?
1: Uh, no, I just think that uh, I'm just a proud member of this profession, and I really appreciate the knowledge base that people are developing. And uh, I try to keep up and, and read as much as I can, and a lot of that is is uh, done in, in various places on planes when I'm traveling to various places. Uh, places to watch competitions or to to speak and uh so it's always good to to discover new things
0: great stuff don Chu. thanks so much for your time today Uh, and you just want to stay online while i just wrap up the podcast and i can say goodbye to you offline so guys what an absolutely brilliant almost 50 minutes with don Chu, an absolute legend within the strength and conditioning and uh, rehabilitation professions Be sure to check him out. Don, have you got a website people can check you out of?
1: I do. Just donchew.com.
0: There you go. donchew.com. It'll be in the show notes. And from there, you can get all Don's information. And uh, I'll link up all the books that Don has published over the years. Uh, Really, really great resources. So for now, guys, I'll talk to you all soon. Take care, be well, and stay strong.